Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, what else is new? What's going on in your life? Um... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to decide what I should and should not share. Oh God. Oh no. No, it's just a bunch of nothings. Oh, okay. But they all add up to something. <laughs> that's <Jesus>. the, <laughs> that's going to be on my tombstone when I die. <laughs> it's just a bunch of nothings, but they all added up to something. <laughs> I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And I'm, I'm a, a writer. writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Ted Flanagan. Crooked Lane recently released Ted Flanagan's debut novel, Every Hidden Thing. Ted has been a newspaper reporter and ghostwriter, and for the past two decades, he's made his living as a paramedic, flight paramedic, and firefighter. His fiction has appeared on Shotgun Honey and Akashic's Mondays Are Murder, among others, and NPR's Cognoscenti has published his essays about being a paramedic in the pandemic, Harper Lee, and his stint as the worst little league coach in America. Before all this... <laughs> Ted dropped out of college to join the Marine Corps the day before Iraq invaded Kuwait, which probably says all you need to know about his sense of timing. He served four years as a recon Marine with 2nd Recon Battalion, and his mom was very pleased when he eventually got out to finish his degree. He lives with his wife, Jen, a public school teacher. There are three kids and a yellow lab named Daisy in the hills of central Massachusetts. Welcome, Ted. Welcome. Thank you so much, guys. I'm uh, just super excited. To, to be on here with you guys. I, I love your podcast. So uh, this is just, it, it's, it's, you know, one of those things, one of the, the best parts of writing a book is I get to meet these people like you that I listen to all the time and admire. So thrilled to be here. We yeah, always love it when we discover writers that we hadn't accessed before and um, get to dive into such a wonderful book, such a fun violent <laughs> like page turner of a book. Yes. I, you know what? In fact, I'm going to read James Elroy's blurb, which is, this is a righteous, hard charging bell ringing motherfucking debut novel. <laughs> I, uh, I, I want to talk about James Elroy after you read to us a little bit. I also want to just read the, the very brief sentence about the book so that people, if they haven't read it yet, can kind of get an idea of what we're dealing with here before you read it to us um, okay. from it. So it just says big city politics, nasty secrets, a dirty cop and a deranged sociopath set the stage for a riveting journey deep into the urban jungle. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you going to read from this uh, motherfucking debut novel? I tell you what, uh, that, that even if this book had never been published, simply having the James Elroy blurb 
uh, oh made it every minute worth it. Oh yeah. my god! The best right. part is, you know, the blur that didn't make it. He, the blur was longer than what Crooked Lane used, but they, he called me the the bastard son he had with a Bengal tigress. Uh, <gasps> yeah, right? What? Yeah, yeah. I I guess I couldn't find room for that on the book cover, but uh, <laughs> that was awesome. I remember next getting book, the next book. You got to throw oh. that on there, Ted. I, you know, right? Right? There's no statute limitations, right? That's right. No, come on. Those are your. That's your word forever. <laughs> that's right. I love it. So I thought I would read from the opening of um, kind of a pivotal chapter in the book. It's where Lou McCarthy, she's one of the, she's a newspaper reporter who's been in, you know, she just, she's been laid off from her job and she's been enticed to dig up dirt on uh, the city paramedic um, at the behest of the mayor and his, and his henchmen. And this chapter is sort of when, you know, things she starts having sort of second doubts um, in her mind about, about, about the things she's doing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's, um, I modeled this on a very real Chinese restaurant that used to exist. It's been closed since then in Worcester, which, you know, it wasn't maybe as atmospheric as it appears in the book, but every time you went in there, you saw somebody interesting, the, you know, city councilors or, you know, the, the local uh, clergy or whatever. So it was, it was an interesting place um, to go. So in this scene, uh, in this chapter, Lou comes into the bar for a meeting with the mayor's henchmen to sort of arrange the, the second financial aspect of the, the thing and and so i'm just going to read a little section where she um uh, she sort of takes into the sights as she walks through this um through this restaurant where she knows pretty soon once she's no longer a newspaper reporter she's going to be forgotten and almost like she never she never lived and she's sort of lamenting this loss of of being connected being in the middle of things uh, which she which she craves and loves awesome so here we go two weeks left labor day on the horizon lou marveled Six months, gone in a blur. Writing those stories about Archer, making that dipshit mayor sound like JFK, taking orders from Conroy. It had become like digging her own grave. And now Lou wanted nothing more than to crawl in and let the undertaker bury her in dirt. And now, with the end so near, Lou headed once again to the Dingwa. The first time, Conroy had slid a manila envelope fat with cash across the bar. First half now, he had said, rest when you deliver. Most of that money had disappeared to pay Danny's college fees and to buy another beat-up sob. Lou was meeting Conroy there tonight. Status update of sorts. The bar at the Dingwa waiting for them, their dark energy camouflaged in a room filled with the sources of the city's real power. The dinger itself had many charms. A thatched hut ceiling over the dining area, the long bar of dark wood that reflected the tin ceiling tiles above, except in the spots where the water rings never quite scrubbed off. The checkerboard white and black tile floor, the small parquet dance floor that Lou had never seen anyone dance on, a corner jukebox, the Kino machine above the bar framed with bubbling electric orange like liquid lights, a buzzy atmosphere charged with clouds of cheap cologne and the sweet tang of fried lo mein noodles. Two steps in and Lou saw her patron over at the big table by the window where the city's power players preened most nights. John O'Toole held court before a throng of strivers. He gave Lou a wave and a smile and returned to his scotch, leaning over first to whisper into the ear of Eamon Conroy, who sat to the mayor's left. Conroy attracted Lou as she crossed the room on her way to the bar. A few more steps toward the lounge and she saw Stony Forrester. The police chief commiserated with four beefy, flush-faced men in their early to late 40s, all in cheap, off-the-rack suits she imagined they'd bought on layaway at Spag's. The dinner companions were balding and double-chinned, their noses like red vine roadmaps perched over gabardine and polyester, two sizes too small. 
she made them for cops, maybe chiefs from the outlying suburbs, the ones who like to come into the city and network with Forrester and his guys, or perhaps local FBI agents banished to this crumbling outpost away from the buzz and aura of crime fighting in Boston. Here, the agents' careers died slow deaths as one day melted into the next, running down check kiters and small-time embezzlers or housewives who financed internet gambling addictions by pilfering from PTA bank accounts. So I says to the guy, buddy, this can go down one way or another. I could give a fuck, said the nearest man, taller than the rest, round-shinned and with an extra floridness to his face, his sandy-haired comb-over more overt than the others. I'm still not giving you back the goddamn doll. The group erupted into howls. They slapped backs, clapped the table so hard the flatware tinkled first, then crashed like someone rattling a shoebox of broken glass. They rocked their chairs and dabbed their, with their ties at the tears of laughter on their cheeks. Stony Forrester remained cross-legged, motionless. He laughed without sound, so that it looked to Lou as if mirth pained him. Stony gave the impression of a man weighing options at all times, panning the mud before him in the hopes of finding flecks of gold. Conversations with the chief always made Lou intensely self-conscious, as if there were some secret sin she would cop to under the intense gaze of Forrester's gray eyes, or were they blue or green? No matter the color, you couldn't help but notice them. His eyes weren't the soft underbelly of the soul. You couldn't divine anything by looking into them. Instead, it was almost like they weren't there, or they were blast doors from a factory furnace, steel and cold and belying nothing behind them. Forrester's physical fitness was legendary. The chief kept the 75-pound dumbbell in his office that he would casually toss from hand to hand while he spoke. It was said Stoney didn't sleep. They just plugged him in at night. Tonight, Lou noted the platter of Kung Pao chicken in front of him sat uneaten. The chief's eyes followed Lou as she walked. She was certain he nodded at her. She suppressed a twinge of sadness as she surveyed the scene. This was the last time she would come to the dinger as a member of the small tribe that ran the place find herself welcomed into the city's communal power source. She wasn't one of those who pulled the levers, but as a reporter, she'd moved the people who did, and her observations meant something to those people. Being a daily newspaper reporter in much of America no longer meant what it once had, but here it still carried weight. People here, particularly those in the public sector, still care what the paper said about them, even as they professed to not give a shit. She didn't know how much longer that would last, but it didn't matter. In a couple weeks, when there was nothing to be gained by knowing Lou McCarthy, she would be as absent from it all as surely as if she died. That's how they would talk about her, too. Gone. A vapor. Someone who'd been here and now was evaporated. Jimmy might put her picture up on the wall behind the bar, but it would be like one of those old daguerreotypes funeral parlors once made of the dead posed as the living and appearing only the more deceased for the effort. Lou knew what it was like to be remembered. She'd been around for the roast that nights like this the dinger produced when the crowd got drunk and misty-eyed and everyone slapped each other on the back and raised shot glasses to Fitzy or Jonesy or whomever and tilted their drinks in honor of the departed who, if they were lucky and had played their cards right, if they'd been wise enough at the right times to make the correct zigs and zags over a few decades of work, would be at that very moment sitting in a condo on Marco Island, relaxing in the caress of some soft coastal Florida winds remembering when that's where I'll stop. I'm really glad that you read that because I, you know, it wasn't until I read your bio that I realized, holy shit, like this novel is a splintering of 
you. <laughs> it is right. because you yourself have lived so many lives. I mean, you, our listeners heard it just in the bio that I read. Was that sort of an act of like exercising all of those experiences as you wrote this book? You know, the one reason I've always felt apart from it was in the Marines. You know, I loved I loved every minute, but I always felt a little a little um, outside. And, and when I was a newspaper mm. reporter, I felt a little, every profession I've ever been in. There's a part of me that wasn't fully immersed in it, that was observing and mm. taking things in. And I, and I think one of the great frustrations is that um, usually, you know, in the professions I've been in, they're amazing people, they're wonderful people, but it's full of a lot of practical minded people. And so the there isn't a lot of like interest or, or patience to hear my ruminations on, on, you know, uh, machine politics or, you know, that. so uh, it was not so much an exorcism as I finally had a captive audience to sort of express things I'd seen and observed. I mean, it's fiction and it's really not autobiographical. I, I tried really hard not to, there's not a whole lot of me per se. Hmm. Um, the, all the characters in my books are usually conglomerations of several people I've known. Uh, there's very little of, I mean, I'm, there's inevitably, you guys are both novelists, you know, the, the drill, like there's inevitably some part of me in, in, at, at times, but uh, mostly I've just finally got to, I, I finally got to entertain myself with things I thought of in my head all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that mm-hmm. uh, it would be, I could explain to my coworkers and they just, they did nice. say, okay, thanks. Dad, that's really great. Well, what are we doing for dinner? You know? <laughs> so, no, no, but did you see, did you notice? Um, so. Uh, that's so yeah it's not such an exorcism is it's just I finally get to say or talk about things that I've observed and uh, no one can tell me to be quiet (laughs) (laughs) is that why you think you chose um to give us the point of view of all the characters like it's a close third for all of the characters uh in terms of point of view we get to get inside um, Conroy's head, who's the henchman that you mentioned. Um, you know, we get to get inside the sociopath's head, Jerry Knack, we get to get inside everyone's head. Was that a decision that you, a choice that you made from the very beginning, or was that something that came to you as you wrote? Oh, I did that very consciously. Yeah. Like mm. uh, most of the novels that I've, I've loved over time, you know, they inhabit usually more than one head. And in fact, I same, actually, uh, same, same. Right. I actually dropped out of a, I was in a writer's workshop uh, for a while in which the, the person, the successful writer that ran in the workshop was absolutely devoted to this idea that a novel can only come through one set of eyes, hmm. one character pursuing one goal, and that's it. There are no digressions. There's no, you just, you go A to B to C to D. And that's so reader, clearly not true. Right. Oh my goodness. I mean, I guess I understand why you, would do a novel like that but to me it's not the sure. only way to do it right oh, yeah no yeah and um so i just i i like to inhabit more than one character and then if i'm being honest i'd say that the biggest impetus for it really came from watching uh shows like the wire and the mm-hmm. sopranos mm-hmm. where you know they by nature there's always these b stories and c stories and they they follow lots of different arcs that you know, my one goal though at the end is to, that they should all intersect i think that's mm-hmm. um you know the, the one book that i really think about like this is uh anthony doors um all the light we cannot see which i Ugh, understand i love that book. um right and the way he takes all these storylines and they come together at the end i i sort of want my reader to be a little frustrated with me in the beginning which i know is you know anybody with my agent probably just you know 
wants to reach out and strangle me when she hears it, but like, <laughs> I, I just get right to it. Right. But I kind of like, I'm getting a lot of reports here that people will say in the beginning, they didn't really know where it was going, but that by the end, it all came together. And that's the mm. greatest um, compliment I can get, you know, but uh, yeah. So to answer your question, Lindsay, I, I, it was delivered from the beginning. And uh, although I mean, this, the novel changed a lot while I was writing it. I, I, I have the worst process of all time. I Ooh, tell a, us, tell us. <laughs> it's awful. So, but I love it. So like other than spending time with my family, the happiest I am in life is at the keyboard. I just, I just love writing. So mm-hmm. I will write five or 600 pages to, to get 300 that I'm going to wow. keep. And, mm-hmm. you know, I love that EL doctoral quote where, you know, um, I forget the exact, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but remember he said, you can drive across the country. Like writing is, he writes that he can only see like as far ahead as the headlights can see when you're driving a car, but you can mm-hmm. get across the country like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I really, when I sit down and write, I don't, I have characters in my mind, but I don't really know what's going to happen. And I just trust my, I trust my subconscious and I'm, I'm always sort of thinking even when I'm not writing. And, and I go down a lot of, uh, I get a lot of false starts and I go down, um, you know, blind alleys. And I, I have a huge file of all the stuff I cut, I save. And I, a lot of it, I'm sure we'll see the light of day sometime, but um, I just, I, I know it's, I'm not a pantser or a plotter. I'm just a, I'm a guesser. You know, I just give I wanted to ask about the, uh, the close third and the structure a little bit too, because I was so interested, um, you know, as a reader, once you're going through and you're realizing, okay, this is going to be an alternating close third, the appearance of knack Jerry Knack in the novel was so exciting because I think one of the things when you're going through an alternating close third is you're waiting for the first repetition of the initial mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. POV. Yep. Yep. And when it's spread all the way out to Knack, and then also when I realized that the repetition of the POVs was not standardized, was not like uh going to be the same throughout the novel i was like oh shit awesome <laughs> it's just it, there was a kind of sprawl there that i found really admirable and i was wondering if you could talk about the process um ted to reach that structure yeah it's it's a mess but it's um... no it's not, <laughs> it's, not a mess. No. it's a happy mess so it's a fun you know i mean like putting it together so i i mm. i really would in the when i'm doing my first draft I have general a general idea of, of where the story is going to end up, but not not super detailed. And so I'll write a chapter at a time. And and then when I have, you know, 10 or 15 chapters, I actually make three by five index cards with the, a quick summary of the chapter. And I lay it out on my bed and then I just start swapping around the cards until I find it's a really intuitive process. And it's more like if I were if I were the reader you know, what would keep me, what would keep me coming back? And so then once I have that general outline, then I'll take another set of cards in a different color and I'll write in potential chapters and where they might go. And then, so by, you know, by the end of that process, I end up with, you know, 20, I think this one had 22 chapters, uh, half of them are written. And so I guess, you know, I guess now that I'm thinking about this in the moment, I guess I'm kind of a liar in that that's technically kind of an outline, I guess, but um, I've never beholden to any particular structure. And that the three by five cards are great because then I can swap those at will and move things around. And the first, actually the original first chapter of the book was the scene in the porno theater. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, which also god that scene is so gross <laughs> you know one of the worst part that's the only call in the book that i was actually on that okay was ted i was gonna ask you about that did was it you who got barfed on no my good oh, friend god. scott powers hopefully he's oh. listening to this we, we, he's my first partner in ems we remain really close friends and um we were in the, it was just narrow staircase and we we're on a stair chair carrying this guy down and you really couldn't go left or right there was it was the walls of the staircase were just barely wider than us and I, we just stood there and let him throw up on scott a oh, bunch of times oh yeah yeah it did was, he really um, say hey i hate to break this to you but uh i'm gonna yes. bar he did oh, he God. did apologize momentarily and then it was <laughs> boom <laughs> oh, oh man yeah. that one was real and i was on that and i wrote that chapter i was in a, a hospital room with my son in uh 2005 or six somewhere that and we, it was a blizzard and my son was asleep. It was the middle of the night. I didn't know. I was kind of just hanging out. And I've, I've always been a writer. Uh, I just didn't get serious about uh, producing fiction that I wanted to see published until about 2013. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I always had, I had, you know, drawers full of notebooks and, and was always writing. And um, I sat in his, his uh, hospital room and I couldn't sleep during the middle of this blizzard. So I wrote that chapter. I'm like, well, I'll just write this thing that happened, <laughs> you know, and then um, that was actually the first chapter of the book. I mean, I ended up moving it deeper in, but um, yeah, that was, it's funny now. <laughs> oh man. I, I <laughs> just to stand there and take it, you know, and like the smell, oh. how did he, okay. I'm, I'm going to stop talking about it. Cause I feel like the more we talk about it, <laughs> the grosser it's going to get. Oh, yeah, wow. it does. It doesn't have, it has a, um, yeah. I don't think there's any part of that story that is going to go. Thank goodness. No, no, it's pretty about as bad as it sounded. Ooh, um, but you just get used thing. to it. Tell us, yeah. uh, tell us about what happened in 2013 that kind of where you flipped the switch and were thinking more about writing for publication or, or going about writing fiction in a different way, Ted. I noticed that I had all these false starts and I, but I, I didn't really have an idea of what, what a story was. And I had no idea really about the entree into, into publishing. I knew next to nothing. I, I always bought poets and writers and would always lurk the MFA program ads. Mm-hmm. And so I finally decided that, you know, I was at the time, 2013, I was working as a flight paramedic and my, my kids were a little older. And the idea of, of going back to school was, uh, was more palatable. So but I knew I wanted to go to a low residency program. And so I ended up, um, get in touch with Diane LeBeck, who is the former director of the uh, Southern New Hampshire MFA program now called uh, Mountain View, I think they changed the name, but, um, and, you know, loved talking with her and, and listen, I, I know the big argument right now between MFA or no MFA. I, I, I'm of two minds. Number one, you absolutely do not need an MFA to write that at all, but I love my program. And I, for me, it was, I got to spend two years around writers and I knew like this, is, I knew nothing about, about being a writer. And I, I could have, yeah, could I figure it out on my own probably, but you know, 10 or 15 years. And I was already, you know, I was, I was ready to, to just accelerate things a little bit. So I don't, um, I don't have any, I don't think, I don't think anybody needs to go to MFA program, but I would never say don't, I, I think maybe um, you'll be, be smart about the finances of it. Right. You know, don't, don't go into huge amounts of debt, but I, I loved it. I I've made lifelong friends and um, it's, it's the best thing I ever did. I get exactly what I, I needed out of it, which was just, I got to meet real writers. 
I got to, you know, what I mean, publishing writers, I shouldn't say real writers. That's, that's, I don't mean it that way, but I meant publishing writers, people that were publishing books, people that uh, a few who that's how they made their living primarily was through, through their, through fiction. And so it was just an accelerator for me. And um, it just seemed like it was time, you know, everything was aligning and the, you, you know, balancing work and kids and all that good stuff. Uh, it finally got my life got to a point where I could make some room for that. And, and mm. but, so I did. It was great. Nice. Tell us about the path to publication for every hidden thing. What was that like for you? So I, when I finished my MFA program, I did what everybody does. And I, I must've queried a hundred agents and um, finally got a referral uh, through a, a writer friend to Julie Stevenson, um, who's at Mass Team McQuilkin. And uh, she, you know, she loved the book. And I, I always tell people like, you don't need everybody to say yes. You just need one person. And when I look back, I mean, thank goodness, you know, both finding an agent and finding a publisher, uh, I really feel like I found the place that, that the book really fit in, in both cases. So I, I, I know it's a frustrating process for people, but, um, you know, just stick with it. I mean, that's the thing, you know, in the Marines, I was in a unit that, you know, the day I tried out, like oh, a couple hundred people tried out for the unit, people a lot stronger and smarter and tougher than me. But, you know, I was stubborn, more stubborn than all of them. And that's that's such a uh, a great trait for a writer, too. You know, that I other people will quit. And I just keep going. You can rejection doesn't phase me. It's just all right. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I, I got my agent through uh, through a referral. And then we worked on the, on the novel. It's, so the novels, the, every hidden thing is based on my MFA thesis, but really mm. I would say it's 70% new material. Mm. Um, yeah. We, I mean, I revised it every time when I would uh, pitch an agent and they would reject it. The ones that were kind enough to send me specific reasons I would revise based on those. Then when we were out on submission, we would get, we got some really wonderful. And I know that sounds like a cookie, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You got some great rejections, just yes. some wonderful rejections. It's really, infuriating. Yeah. It's infuriating. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Cause they're right. You, you follow their advice. Like, oh, they were right. Why didn't I see this? Mm-hmm. And um, so we just kept polishing and submitting and, and sure enough, Ben Leroy at, at um, Crooked Lane, just it's, you know, I had known him from his previous work at Tyrus. And then when Tyrus got closed uh, by Simon Schuster, uh, Ben was, uh, you know, wasn't editing for a couple of years. And, but I, I loved a bunch of books that he had edited. So um, when he went to Crooked Lane, we submitted to him there and he loved the book. And then from there, there was a, a couple more edits with Ben and with um, Sarah Henry, who uh, works with Crooked Lane. She's fantastic as well. And, um, and here we are. So it was probably all told from, from the day I, I signed with, with uh, Julie till uh, Ben, um, bought the book, I would say, or as Crooked Lane acquired the book, I would say it's probably about two and a half years mm. wow. uh, of okay. just of work. Yeah. So I don't feel like it was, it was, certainly wasn't, you know, the, the one week preempt, you know, from auction, right. but it wasn't, uh, wasn't five years either. And I think that's the other thing I learned is that, you know, when the, it, when it's time, it's time, you know, it, 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 these things take, it can take five days to sell a book or five years, but either way, it doesn't matter. Once it's out there, no one really, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's just going to find the right home. I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was curious about, so every hidden thing, you know, it's, it's obviously crime fiction, but at the same time, if, if you just handed me the manuscript and stripped off the cover and everything, it's, there's enough like literary bent to it 
where I was curious if like what kind of publishers you guys were submitting to, because as, as I was reading the book, Ted, you know, I'm writing down names like, you know, Leonard Gardner and Richard Price and Don Carpenter. Like, these, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Like, you just these need the, like three huge influences for me. Oh, Absolutely. for real? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and all three of those people are, are kind of writers that you could really shelve, you know, in literary fiction, you could shelve them in crime fiction, mm-hmm. and it would be totally justifiable. And I was curious about if that kind of distinction matters to you, if, if you conceive of the book in one way or you were, or you were thinking, you know what, I think of my book in this way, but I know marketing it in a, in a different way is going to be a better route for me. I, I just kind of wanted to hear about your, your, your understanding of all that. You know, I think, you know, if, if I'm being honest, you know, the, uh, if we tried selling it as literary fiction, it would probably still be looking. It's, it's really hard, right. To get, get literary fiction published. And, you know, reading Lush Life by Richard Price, that, that oh my gosh, changed what a my mind, book. right? I love yeah, that. I mean, that's just, oh, everything. And then, you know, Fat City, yeah. you know, and all these, uh, the, then the book I think of, and, and stylistically, it's probably not exactly the same, but the same flavor is uh, The Professional by W.C. Hines. I don't know if you've ever oh, read that. I've read it. It's the novel almost completely in dialogue. It's, it's, a, it's a boxing novel, but it's really about sort of, um, you know, stri- up and striving to, to make, your way someplace in America. And it's just, it's a phenomenal book. And I think it could easily be, you know, it's, it's a little bit of crime, but it's also a literary. Um, my reading tastes go across all, all genres. And so like, I, I'm happy just that it, it was published. I think um, it's definitely easier to publish a book as a crime novel, as opposed to if we try to, um, you know, get this published as like a, as literary fiction mm-hmm. in, and I'm fine with that. You know, I, I love crime. Um, oh yeah. You know, so I, I, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm such a, this is my first time through the whole process too. So I'm, I'm sort of just going with the flow and learning and observing as we go. And so uh, my, the, my, the novel I'm working on right now is, is technically historical fiction. And so I wonder sometimes I, I try not to let these thoughts creep into my head because I'm not even halfway through the first draft, but I do wonder, I'm like, well, what would it be like trying to sell right. historical fiction? But at the end of the day, you know what, I'm going to write it. If it sells great, if it doesn't, I've already got the next one planned and I'll just, I'll, I'll keep writing until I tell, you know, they can, no one has to publish. I'll just keep writing. <laughs> it's, it's, you, it, you know, it's, I can't imagine not writing. So, um, you know, I, I, I guess long, long story short, I, I, I don't have a good answer for that question, but I think, I think there's more opportunity for publishing this book as a crime novel than there would have been. I think if we had pitched it as literary fiction, we did pitch, you know, the, the, the standard, the big houses and, the, sure. you know, and um, it was funny. The book wasn't quite literary enough for some houses and then for other houses, it wasn't genre enough. You know, it was this weird, um, and it was crazy. Well, the one that killed me is uh, I won't name names, but there's this um, house I really I really admire, and the the editor that we pitched had edited this book in which the main character's mother is bludgeoned to death by a psychopath with a baseball bat. This guy <laughs> edited that book, and his he rejected my book because he said it was too dark. <laughs> Which, I, <don't> even, <laughs> I, I, don't even, I can't even take that personally. I don't even know what to say. Like, what are your, right. what's the response? Like, I read this book you edited. <laughs> like, it was great. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, to, there is nothing quite like that in my book. So I don't know. I, it's, I think a lot of it is all boils down to, uh, I, I'm pretty convinced 
you know, publishing houses probably don't really know what, what will sell these days. And so they're mm-hmm. all taking a shot at, they're all taking stabs in the dark. Um, yeah. So I, and I, I think a foot in both camps is so, so awesome because, you know, this is a, this is a book that I feel like I could confidently hand to my dad who, who would probably prefer a little bit more genre stuff than I do typically, or definitely would, but I could also hand it to, you know, any one of my friends who only would read whatever highfalutin lit fiction and they would be like, <laughs> Holy shit, this is, you know, this is, this is so tight. This thing is great. So I feel like being a tweener is uh, a badge of honor as far as I'm concerned. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks. I, you know, for me, it's just, I, I don't know. I wanted to, I tried it. I, I mean, good, bad, or indifferent. I, I gave this book my best shot and I really tried to, to, to be an honest effort, like at, at something more than just, just a quick read. You know, I, I, um, I love good writing and I tried to, to put some in here if I could, you know, I mean, individual readers will have to decide whether they, whether I succeed or not, but I mean, it it's an honest effort. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's, uh, there was nothing cynical about, um, about anything I put in the book. And so I, I just, it's like, it's like anything you do that if you love it, you want to make it as good as you can. And so uh, as, as someone who loves literary fiction, as much as, as you know, I, I don't know. I love, I love a good, you know, barn burner as well. So sure. uh, if I can, and I don't, you know, I don't see any reason why a, a good book that makes you think can't also be entertaining. I don't. Oh my God. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was thinking a lot about, um, the night always comes by Willie Vlotten, which I, um, I just read a couple months, maybe last month. Um, and it's kind of this kind of the tweener novel that you're talking about, Alex, it's, it's never takes a breath. Like, like your book does Ted, um, or doesn't your book doesn't take a breath either. <laughs> um, but it's also, uh, got these really beautiful atmospheric, you know, thoughtful moments. Um, and I haven't read that, that one yet. I read his, um, was it motel stories that he, uh, was, is awesome about the two brothers on the, run. I haven't read that one. I've only oh, read great. that. I've only read that Willie Blotton book and I just loved it. That, and that's my favorite kind of book. It's, it's the tweener book. I, yeah. I, I, I totally yeah. agree with you, Ted. Why can't it be both? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah, I don't see both. any reason. I don't see any reason. Right. Exactly. Ted, I was curious about, uh, the, you know, what I, one of the, one of the, my favorite things about every hidden thing was the fact that it's not a Boston novel. It's a Worcester novel. Yes. I, I hope, hopefully yes. I said that right. And you did, you did nicely, nicely done. <laughs> and I, I wanted to know if there was, if there's other, if there's other, you know, if there's a, if there's a literary tradition of storytelling that takes place in Worcester, because I feel like, you know, as as you, you can't live in this country and not be inundated with stories set in Boston, I feel like I don't know if it's been this way for you know the past 50 years, but I feel like especially like the past 15, 20, it's like Boston stories are everywhere. But it was so cool to read such a specific you know location, uh have it set in Worcester. I was wondering if you and I believe you live near Worcester, did you always know that you were going to set it close to home? Did you consider moving it, you know, to Boston or what was, what was kind of your, uh, your calculations making those decisions? All right. So this is the, uh, the pretentious part of the evening. So (laughs) (laughs) I I wanted to do for Worcester, what William Kennedy did for Albany. 
And I love William Kennedy novels, uh, you know, yep. Billy Phelan's Big Game and Ironweed and, you know, mm-hmm. just, uh, and, you know, and then I was thinking that when I read Sutri by, by Cormac McCarthy, where he's writing about uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, like these, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by books that find huge themes in out of the way places. And so I, I was born in Worcester. My family's, uh, you know, my, my father's side of the family, uh, both his mother and father's side all came over from Ireland at the, at the turn of the century to, uh, you know, dig a canal and train racehorses. And, and uh, you know, they lived in this huge triple decker with like, you know, four generations of the family down on, on Park Ave in Worcester. And so I'm, um, you know, there's storytelling. Which, yeah. You, if you ever come this way, and we'll go and we'll just go hang out at, you know, at a, at a bar or restaurant or somewhere. The people in Worcester are the best storytellers. Oh, they're just, it, it, it's, it's almost impossible for a, a person from Worcester to tell you a story that isn't hilarious and at times, you know, gut wrenching. And um, so, I, you know, Worcester is a place that deserves, deserves to be written about. It, it, it has, you know, there's a Jack O'Connell was one of my favorite writers of the nineties and early two thousands. He wrote a bunch of novels based in a fictionalized Worcester and, uh, and he's born, raised in Worcester and still lives there. Cool. And yeah. And, and other than Jack, like I really, there really haven't been a lot of people that have written about Worcester and it's, it's a shame. Like the city, you know, there's both, you can read uh, into a lot about the Worcester psyche when we tell you we're proud that we're the second biggest city in, in New England. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of a inferiority complex. With Boston. <laughs> um, I think someone but, says that in the book at some point, right? Right. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, Worcester is both, you know, this, it's like a, it's like a relative that you love and hate at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the only thing, like as much as people in the city might, you know, the city might drive you nuts. The only thing that makes you crazier is when somebody from outside the city speaks ill of the city. And then, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, you know, only I'm, can do that. I'm, I'm from Orlando. So I totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh yeah. 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 Orlando. So who, yeah. Who's right about Orlando. Right. Cause that's another, I would think, you know, a great American city that God lately though, a lot, right. Lindsay, I feel like there's so there's many a lot of like recently Florida writers. I don't know. Sure. It's a lot of like, Oh, you know, you're like in the swamp or you're in South Florida. I don't know. I don't know who's writing about central Florida. I don't know. Maybe Kristen Arnett. I was just going to say, where's Kristen from? Yeah. Yeah, I you know they every time we go. So when my kids were young, we would go to Disney World every August. My wife's a school teacher, and and I will lie to you, I love it. I love you know why? Because I you pay them, you write them a check, and then you don't have to do a thing. Everybody's gonna have a good time. <laughs> I eat like a king. The kids have a blast. It's awesome. It's yeah. awesome. But I used to read the set the Orlando Sentinel every day because I would love like I never forget one year we went down there and uh, there was a story about an FBI agent who was on vacation with his family at a hotel in I Drive, International Drive. And he went down to the car to get something and got kidnapped. <laughs> and what? Yeah. And they didn't know the guy was an FBI agent. I forget why they didn't act, they snagged him. But of course, in about five minutes, his massive law enforcement response showed up. And I'm just thinking, like, there's a great like George Higgins or Elmore Leonard novel. Right. Yes. Story about <laughs> kidnapping Holy the wrong shit. guy, not the wrong tourist. Man, I drive yeah. that was like my backyard. <laughs> I never it was, got it's kidnapped. One of the hotels, right? <laughs> We're still well, it was always a part of that story that had me sort of squinting my eyes. Yeah. Like just right. randomly grab this guy. I don't know. But uh, no, wow. but so I, you know, I want to do for Worcester what, what Kennedy did for, for Albany. And that's just, um, you know, it, it, it's uncharted territory. I and mean, I think part of it too is, 
it's always good to have your your own place. You know, like mm-hmm. if I were writing about Boston, I'd be competing with George V. Higgins and and Dennis Lehane and you know, mm-hmm. name name your writer. Like that's yeah, except territory has been covered pretty well by some some heavy hitters and mm-hmm. um, Worcester's Worcester doesn't need to uh, you know take a backseat to any sort of northeast urban bedraggled city and and I have kind of have it all to myself and I, I, love, I it. love it about it yeah that's awesome what's uh, different about um, this historical fiction novel that you're writing what feels different are you still sort of overwriting you know using your index cards what's what's this process like it's weird because it's based on a real incident. I, I, so one of my favorite living writers is this guy, David Peace. He's a, a British oh, yes. writer, right? Oh, yes. He is just- I was just, we've, we've had hit, we've had red is, is it red is dead? Yes. Oh and yeah. Great book. About 1974. Soccer, uh, yeah. We've had both those it. books on our shelf and neither, neither my husband or I have ever gotten around to reading them, but I want to. Oh, he's amazing. Pick them up. Yeah. So he, you know, the last few years, um, so that 1974 was the first novel in a quartet mm-hmm. and he, he'll tell you that of, of the four books, that's the one he sort of, he's a little, the writing's amazing, but there, he makes up some murders in the book. Mm. And he's part of this sort of growing um, movement in crime fiction. Of uh, It's based on uh, the 90s British crime writer, Derek Raymond, and this idea of the black novel, that crime novels should, uh, they should be based on real incidents and that you should spend as much time focusing on the victims and the victims' families as you do like hunting, you know, the perp. Mm. And I mean, I've read, there's been whole PhD dissertations written about it. And the, the, the take home message to me, you know, is I, I don't want to, I don't want to start writing novels where I mean, there's already enough misery in the world. And so I, I don't know that I need to make up books where I'm just dropping bodies left and right. Mm. And there's this, uh, so the, the historical fiction, it's the book, largely the themes I'm interested in are things like the proxy wars of the fifties and sixties, the cold war. And um, these guys that came home from Korea, like this forgotten war, and they had mm-hmm. clearly had these symptoms of, of PTSD and whatnot. And so the story revolves around this. When you, when you go to Marine Corps boot camp, you learn about this thing called the ribbon Creek incident. And, you know, the ribbon Creek is right by the rifle range. I've seen it. I smelled it. Uh, it's where in the ni- 1956, this drill instructor, he was a, a Korean war vet he fought at the chosen reservoir, which is just was a slaughter came back. And then was a drill instructor. He felt like his platoon was, was soft and undisciplined. And so mm. he, one night he marched 76 of them into a Creek into ribbon Creek. Mm. Not, and most of them, a lot of the guys couldn't swim their inner city kids from, you know, Brooklyn and the Bronx. And he forgot that there was a strong out um, undertow that sucks all the water out of the oh Creek back out into the river. Yeah. Oh and six recruits died. <gasps> what was his name uh matthew McEwen okay. uh was the drill instructor's name and so when when this happened it was a very precarious time the marine corps there was already a lot of talk about disbanding the marine corps that we didn't need it anymore oh, wow. and oh yeah and the, and the real the whole culture was weird uh was just something i don't think that in 2021 we really can fathom you know like it was it was frowned upon if you, if you had a family you would still live in the barracks not with your family and um so anyway he uh, he beat you know, he got charged with murder, six, uh, six counts of murder. He, he beat the charges, got busted in rank, did three more years in the Marine Corps, and then was discharged and moved to a house that I drive by 20 times a day. He moved to my little town in a big brick colonial right around the corner from my house. And so he died in 2004. And so every time I 
drive by his house, I think about this Ribbon Creek incident. It's one of the, you know, big, uh, one of the, the hall, the, the sort of um, bellwethers in the Marine Corps in the last, you know, 70 years. And I, you know, when you, you really look into it and I've had a chance to talk to people who knew him, this is a guy that was tortured by that his whole life. And so I, my thought is telling the story of the Ribbon Creek incident through multiple viewpoints to include the, um, the six, uh, a couple of the dead recruits wow. and other people, the real, uh, you know, uh, um, some of the people that really were there who written biographies and, and whatnot. And so tell the true story of, of this drowning through several different viewpoints. And so it's, it's not crime. I, I mean, it's, I don't know what you would call it. I, I'm, I'm hoping historical fiction is <laughs> acceptable, yeah, but it's, yeah. um, I, and it was different, but it's, um, it's definitely, um, the structure, there's almost no structure to it right now. And mm -hmm. I don't even know what that's going to look like when I start moving chapters around or right now, I'm just writing it kind of like, uh, Minus the dexedrine and the scroll is sort of like um, Kerouac, just, <laughs> just you know, just sitting the down and scroll. <laughs> scroll. I'm not taking speed, and I don't have a scroll of butcher's paper. But I, I other than that, it's identical. You know, so yeah, it's a lot of fun to write. I don't know. I hope it. I hope it pans out. You know, I, I, I got to get this story off my chest so I can stop thinking about this yeah. guy every time I drive by his house. Yes. Um, it so, sounds please. riveting. My grandfather was a colonel in the Marines and he served in the Korean War. And I Damn. had never I had never heard of the Korean War. Um, we went to D.C. Uh, on a family trip in, when I was in high school and we, you know, we went and looked at all the memorials. He also served in Vietnam and, wow. you know, we saw the Vietnam Memorial and then we walked through the Korean War Memorial, which um, is a series of. Oh, my the, God. The, the guys marching through the. Yes. Through the field. Yeah, that's right. It's it. it it made me silent when I saw it. Yeah. I, he, he was a very, um, very loving grandfather and, uh, like, you know, uh, laughing, joking grandfather. And I walked up behind him to sort of talk to him as he was walking through it. And I looked up and he was weeping and I had never, mm. ever seen that before. I'd never seen him cry or anything like yep. that before. And, um, it was just something, something to see. Those guys carried a, a big burden and, and mm -hmm. had no recognition, you know, and you know, it's funny now in the ambulance, what happened, not funny, but um, we were seeing more and more. I mean, uh, maybe not every day, but, you know, once every couple of months. Is, so a lot of these guys that survived Korea and Vietnam, they're older now and, and all the whatever coping mechanisms they had to repress all these memories as they get dementia and Alzheimer's, those, mm -hmm. those mechanisms are failing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, wow. a couple of years ago, wow. I took a guy to the hospital that thought he was, he was an older gentleman. Uh, he, he was living, he was at the ball, the battle of the bulge, watching his, his friends get blown up oh my uh, God. in the back of my ambulance, you know, and it's just, so these guys, they, they were able to cope all these years. And then it's um, the coping mechanisms are failing as they're, you know, they're sort of um, their, their mind is failing and oh it's God, uh, wow. yeah. Yeah. God. Well, I mean, uh, it'd be a bummer. <laughs> so, no, no. Well, no, because no. we can't, we can't get you out on that one. You're a Bruins fan, right? Oh yeah. Oh okay, yeah. So I got, I got to ask you one or two quick Bruins questions on the way out. We don't have many hockey fans. <laughs> Are you a Coyotes so fan? On brand. No, no, no. I'm a, I'm an Avs fan. All right. All right. Okay. So is, is Creechy coming back? Do you think? <sighs> I don't know. He was so hurt last year. You know, God, he's tearing up the Czech league though. I hope he comes back. I think I could tear up the Czech league. <laughs> okay, that's fair. And then and I, I love them. Uh, I was a huge Krejci fan. Oh, you know? How could I, you not be? And yeah. then, and then do you think Rask will come back? I feel like it would be, 
I mean, it's goaltending, right? It's like if you yep. guys get some goaltending and you get a little bit of help from McAvoy, any yep. scoring other than that first line, you guys are scary. I've never recovered from the loss of Tim Thomas. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we're going back to 2012. Um, yeah, Rask, Rask, he's, he's you, I think most, you know, I still play hockey with a bunch of, you know, guys my own age now. Thank goodness I stopped playing with the young guys because it, ridiculous but um <laughs> so i think most most bruins fans it's the same thing like he's an amazing regular season goalie and he just seems to lack that little bit to get us over the top you know yeah, uh, yeah i got high hopes for swayman you know yep. but it, this year is really yeah we'll see i bet you you know he started practicing again with the team so i saw that yeah yeah so i i would bring him back he was also hurt last year you did it you know that was it a hip or the uh, something was like torn all year so right um, all who right. knows how okay. he would have done yeah well i don't know i love watching your squad it's that that first line is just like that's just beautiful hockey yeah but hey listen as a umass alum i'm a huge cole mccarr fan there so you go you love guys my got McCarr. oh yeah yeah the abs have got a good future with him okay good i'll take it see we had to we had to switch off uh korean war real quick we had to end on a high note. <laughs> right, right. that's my fault you Sorry guys about that. are talking about basketball right that's right yes, <laughs> basketball. yes. As my Ted, friend the, we, the novelist, uh, uh, john virtue says we're talking sports ball that's right that's right sports ball exactly yeah. got it got it got it ted we absolutely loved your book uh, it's, it's so fun to have someone, you know, you just kind of know on Twitter a little bit, or, you know, go back and forth with, uh, you end up reading the book and you end up loving it. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Guys, I feel like a million bucks. You have made my month. I, uh, I can't thank you enough for all the kind words and, and, and have me on the show. I mean, uh, this is huge for me. So thank you. <laughs> it was bet. totally our pleasure. And we absolutely, absolutely loved it. The book is every hidden thing. Everybody go get it right now. such a good book it's a great book and yeah fans of uh the the three names that i i wrote down were the ones i said to ted you know if you're a leonard garden fan if you're a richard price fan if you're a don carpenter fan you're gonna love this book i mean it's don winslow i would even say yeah i haven't read don winslow he's one of uh benny's faves there you go <laughs> one of benny's boys one of benny's boys <laughs> uh he he had a um he wanted everyone to know his favorite book that he read this year was the children's Bible by Lydia Millet. God, I wanted to read that one. I'm going to read it next. I read a profile of oh, fucking Christ. What? Oh, you read it? a profile of. <laughs> yeah. Did you read that too? <laughs> what is the woman's name who wrote weather and oh, Jenny awful? Yes. Okay. There I'm was a profile of her and like, Lydia Millet is a good buddy of hers, I guess. And she was oh. kind of a, a tertiary character in this profile. And the description of her in this profile made me, I was just like, wow, I will, I want to read anything written by this person. And I, yeah. I haven't read any, have you read anything by Lydia? No, Millet? no. I, there's, there's so many like uh, embarrassing absences in my reading history that I. Oh God. Are you kidding me? I can yeah. definitely you and I could go round for round. Oh, Jenny Awful's one of them. I just realized I own her books and I have not read them. I've read the Department of Speculations, I would call it. It's excellent. I think you would actually love it. I know I would. I know. And my friend Pam, hi Pam, sent me weather and I haven't read it yet. Yeah. I'm reading um 
the new Miriam Taves right now. And it is so, Oh my God. It's so her. It's so good. I feel like, and I felt like this with women talking as well. Mm-hmm. I don't like people don't freak out about her enough. She's a stone cold genius. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, have her email address. <laughs> I know you did the event with her at uh, I know. What, women and children first. Yeah. I know I might email her after I'm done reading this. She's yeah. I haven't, I haven't read women talking. I have only read, uh, Oh Jesus. Sorry. It's been a, <laughs> a day. Uh, the kids are getting up at four fifty for yeah. some reason. That's like uh-huh. the new thing four fifty, And I'm just like, oh, that's rough. That is um, rough. what is it? Uh, flying Troutman's flying Troutman's mm-hmm. and all my puny sorrows I've read. Oh and God, that's a classic. I loved both of them so much. I, What's I the loved one so- with where she writes about her father's death? It's a, it's a non, it's a, I don't know, like a memoir type thing. And she writes know. it in second person because that's how, that's how she was able to speak to him at the end of his life. God damn. It's incredible. Yeah, no, she's amazing. Um, she's one of those people, like I read those two books. I love them. And I thought I want to save the rest for later in life. I mean, I that's, I don't think that's a good decision, but it no, was I, a decision. I, <laughs> I know because you don't want to like power through all of them and then be yeah. bereft. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and also they're lingerers, you know, like they stay Definitely. with you. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? It's busy, busy, busy at work, right? It's busy at work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. I don't know what else is going on. Uh, yeah it's that time of year i i was gonna say this is our last podcast of 2021 oh it is yeah we're not gonna record another one a couple we gotta be funnier and better let's do better let's do better okay okay um (laughs) i i was going to say i was going to list the books that i loved that i read this year um but then I was like going through my list that I read this year. And there's like so many that I absolutely love, but Lacey Crawford's book comes to mind notes on a silencing mm-hmm. Willie Flotten that I mentioned on the chat with Ted. Yep. Um, Melanie Finn's book, the hair. You are a, you're a finhead. You guys got to, if you haven't read her, do yourselves a favor. She is incredible. She is amazing. Um, no holds barred. She touches the bear on every page. <laughs> <laughs> our buddy um, uh our buddy isaac butler is a, he loved he read something by melanie finn recently yeah yeah he read the hair yeah that's right okay is that what we read yeah yeah the first one i read was the gloaming and it blew my socks off is that a saying yep sure <laughs> and then i've just been anytime she puts something out i just jump right on it she's incredible and two dollar radio is her publisher mm-hmm. so if you don't trust me you can trust them <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, those are the ones that come that jump to mind. What about you? I mean, if I'm being dead honest, I, the stuff that I read this year that I love the most was like manuscripts from buddies. Um, mm. uh, I read two former guests. I read some stories by Emily Adrian and Adam Price that were just God. fantastic. The hotel never sink. Yes, Unreal. I think I read that. Yes, I mean, this year. So yes, yeah. that's if up I there. read that. Yeah, if ne- if never sink was this year and second story was this year, which I think it was, those are two of my favorites and two of my favorite writers for sure. But um, such great books. Yeah. Oh my god! 
but um yeah i don't know i feel like it was a, a year of like reading for the show is i feel like sometimes intense because we're like trying to ramp up for a, for an episode so it's hard for me to even like remember what i read this year it sounds I know. so crazy no the only reason i remember is because i have my stupid goodreads my dorky goodreads page yeah right so i can go through and look at things but um, uh the fourth yeah. child by jessica winter i'll have to yeah, you mentioned you'd mentioned that one a couple of times. You really like that one a lot. Love that one. Gina Frangelo's mem- memoir, incredible. You know what? Stan by Miriam Krolos that yeah. we read for the show was an absolute favorite. I think because it was so out of nowhere. Uh, yeah. You know, a friend, a couple of friends actually run Meekling Press and they sent that book over and it was just so different than a lot of what typically comes into our inbox and it just floored me so things like that and you know what ted's book is similar in that Mm -hmm. ted was just someone i kind of casually knew on twitter you know you know just a nice guy that you know you interact with for a few years whatever and he sends his book and it's like holy fuck this is a book like this is a real book i love when that happens yeah i feel so stupid when it does well well and it's not that you don't think it's going to be that way it's just that the surprise is so amazing because you and I both know what it takes to, to pull it off and, and not pull it off. And uh, yeah, it's just, that's the best feeling. I mean, that's, that's been a really cool part of the show is just being surprised. Um, Surprised. Keep surprising us y'all. Yeah. And uh, more hockey, more hockey fan writers come on so we can, so we can talk a little bit of bullshit at the end of the episodes. Yeah. And then I can learn. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm just kidding. Or I can micro nap. (laughs) Or you can edit it out. (laughs) No, no. Hockey's great. She doesn't love hockey. (laughs) Fucking Ben, your husband. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you. It's been a little over a year since we started this. God damn. Little silly show. And um, thank you for listening and more to come next year. Yes. Goodbye. 2022. (laughs) Goodbye. I'm a writer, but is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter music by Max Loop.